Hello and welcome to RipperCast, as we bring to you Adam Wood's talk from the Chamberlain Hotel on the 2nd of February, 2020. Adam is an author, researcher, and publisher with nearly 30 years of involvement in Ripper studies. He is the longtime executive editor of Ripperologist magazine, the founder of the British true crime publishing house Mango Books, and the author of the soon-to-be-released major biography of Chief Inspector Donald Sutherland Swanson, entitled Swanson, The Life and Times of a Victorian Detective. The talk that you are about to hear was a portion of that book's launch event, and you can order your copy by visiting Mango Books at mangobooks.co.uk. So without further ado, let's venture into the Chamberlain Hotel and listen to Adam Wood with a talk on Dr. Thomas Bond's profile on Jack the Ripper. Uh, well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for coming to the talk and the long-awaited launch of my biography of Donald Swanson. One or two of you know it's taken me more than six years to prepare. I actually got to the point I didn't think I'd be standing here at one point doing a, doing a talk on the launch. But um, what I'd like to do today is uh, talk about um, an aspect of Jack the Ripper, which I know is interest to many of you, which does appear within the book. Um, but before I start, I'd just like to ask a couple of questions to Tony, if I may. Um, what do you do this morning? Um, I have breakfast, no. and then I plan my route here. Okay, and what are you going to do after the talk this afternoon? Uh, I'm going to plan to have some more beer, and talk to my friends here, and then I'll be going home. And what about tomorrow morning? Okay. Well, I don't mean to be nosy, Tony. I'm just illustrating that things don't happen in total isolation. None of us just beamed into these chairs 10 minutes ago, and as a context to everybody's situation. And that's the approach I've tried to take to, uh, with my book on Swanson, from which, the, as I say, the talk is taken today. His life and career evolved over many years, and not just a series of bullet points of cases. And the same is true of the profile of Jack the Ripper written by Dr. Thomas Bond. It's widely seen as the first attempt at profiling a serial killer, as we will see, was used by respected criminologists very soon after the Whitechapel murders for their own research. But again, the report didn't appear out of nowhere. As with everything in this case, there's a number of circumstances which led to Bond preparing his profile. And this talk is more about the history of that document than the contents itself. So let's take a look at the doctor's background and the events leading to his preparing the profile in November 1888. <clears throat> Born in Somerset in 1841, Thomas Bond was educated at Taunton and then as a student to his uncle, Dr McCann of Southampton, before training at King's College Hospital in London. In 1866, he joined the Prussian military service at the time of the Austro-Prussian War and following his return to London, set up a practice in Westminster. Bond was appointed divisional surgeon to the Metropolitan Police's A Division, Westminster, in March 1867, which included the officers employed at Scotland Yard. As surgeon to the Met, he dealt with many important cases, including Kate Webster, Percy Lefroy Mapleton, and the Thames Torso murders, and of course was heavily involved in the Whitechapel murders case. Dr. Bond was described as being one of the best of medical witnesses because of his clear evidence. 
It was no surprise, therefore, that Bond was one of those attending the scene of Mary Kelly's murder in Miller's Court on the morning of 9th of November 1888, joining fellow doctors William Jukes, George Baxter Phillips and Frederick Gordon Brown, and detectives Abilene, Reed and Moore. This image is taken from the Michael Caine drama, before you get excited about discovering a colour photograph. <coughs> but it gives a good idea of what the court would have been like that morning, just ignore the bloodhounds. Yeah. Yeah. Dr Bond may have been in demand that November, but 1888 had actually been a very difficult year for the surgeon, and he may not be involved in the Ripper case at all, following a year of arguments with Commissioner Sir Charles Warren. And if we know anything at all about Warren, it's that he seldom backed down from an argument. The dispute started on New Year's Day, when Bond discovered that his medical services were no longer required at Scotland Yard. Seeking an explanation, the following day he wrote to the Commissioner, Dear Sir Charles, in the most casual manner I learned yesterday that I had been superseded in my appointment as surgeon to the police at Scotland Yard. This had been done without giving me the slightest notice of such intention, nor have I heard of any complaint, nor of any reason why my attendance on the men should cease. I am informed that the gentleman who has been appointed to supersede me is Mr. Frederick William Farr, a young surgeon, just two years qualified and with no medical qualification. He may be a very excellent surgeon, I do not know him, but he would not be allowed by the local government board to attend sick paupers until he had passed a medical examination. Why this gentleman had been picked out for such a responsible appointment, of course, I have no right to inquire. But, having been intimately acquainted with the secret history of the Metropolitan Police for over 20 years, I know pretty well the wire-pulling agencies that manage such appointments, but which I am quite sure you would disapprove of. I think, however, you will agree that I have a right to inquire why I have been superseded without notice and without reason and it is but natural I should feel aggrieved by such treatment. And on the 1st of February, Dr Bond followed up by writing to the Under Secretary of State, complaining that the removal from his care of members of the Executive Branch of Scotland Yard, and also the, the officers of the CID, had been done without the sanction of the Home Secretary. In fact, Bond had been misinformed about his replacement. It was not the young Dr Farr, Frederick Farr, but the experienced Dr, Dr. George Farr, who was a divisional surgeon of L Division at Lambeth, and at 54, some nine years older than Bond himself. Dr Farr lived at 175 Kennington Road, very much at the centre of L Division. Farr gave evidence of a couple of interesting cases in 1888. The first was Thomas Uberfield, who had attempted to murder his own daughter by cutting her throat on the 13th of September. Uberfield said that the weapon, a razor, had been brought to cut his own bowels open because he felt something creeping about inside. Dr Farr testified that he had known Uberfield as a patient of unsound mind for 18 months, his main delusion being that he had animals crawling around inside <coughs> him. And two months later, the divisional surgeon examined an injury to 19-year-old Ellen Worsfield, who had been stabbed in the abdomen in the early hours of 15th of November 1888 in Westminster Bridge Road, Although not life-threatening, the wound bled freely. Her attacker, Collingwood Fenwick, was caught and charged. Sir so Charles Warren's response to Bond's complaint and the subsequent Home Office inquiry was predictable, and the Commissioner laid out his facts to the Under-Secretary of State 
as he saw them, he wrote as follows. Dr Bond is mistaken in saying that he was appointed to the Executive Officers of Scotland Jars and the Detective Force more than 20 years ago. He has no claim to a monopoly of medical charge of the constables of Scotland Yard. The general rule of the service has always been to place the men as far as practicable in medical charge of the surgeon where they live in, which is a natural method of proceeding. On the 26th of November 1887, a representation was made to me by the four heads of departments of the Commissioner's Office, namely the Executive Branch, the CID, Public Carriage Branch and the Lost Property Office, that it would greatly conduce to the comfort of the men of the Commissioner's Office, who are nearly all married and live on the south side of the river, if the divisional surgeon of the L Division were to deal with the sick of the Commissioner's Office. This was recommended by the Assistant Commissioner and was approved by me as desirable. As the A Division is so large and the men of the Commissioner's Office's office live on the other side of the water. It has never been the custom for the Commissioner to give notice to surgeons of any change of this nature, which are actually going on every day. For example, 76 men were a few days ago added to the A Division for duty during the session, and no complaint was made by Dr Bond of this addition without notice being given to him. Uh, the matter rumbled on into March, with Bond once again riding to the Home Office, this time to underline the fact that neither Chief Constable Dolly Williamson nor Assistant Commissioner James Monroe knew anything about his removal, and that Chief Surgeon Alexander McKellar had not been involved in the decision either. Warren's response was to provide evidence of the increasing number of men under Dr Bond's care over the years, illustrating irrefutably that the surgeon was unable to attend properly to their medical requirements. For six years from 1877, the number of men remained steady at 430, but in 1883, the figure had jumped to 535 and subsequently risen steadily until in 1887, when there were 746 officers employed in A Division. This was, of course, in addition to Bond's consulting practice, his work at Westminster Hospital, and the Great Eastern and Great Western Railway companies. There could be no argument that Dr Bond had attempted to take on more work than he was able to cope with. A clue to the reasons for this would appear in his obituary in the British Medical Journal in June 1901, where it was noted that there could be no doubt the married father of six would have distinguished himself as a surgeon, but the necessity for providing for the needs of a large family compelled him to accept work which interfered with a purely surgical practice. Dr Bond may have sensed he was fighting a losing battle, for on the 25th of May 1888, he wrote to the receiver, claiming a salary for the half year to the 31st of December 1887, the day before he discovered he'd been superseded by Dr Farr. Bond's letter claimed that since 13th of December 1887, he had lost the financial reward treating five superintendents, 38 inspectors and 124 constables, as these have been transferred to FAR. Perhaps needless to say, payment was not forthcoming. The end of the drawn-out affair came in late autumn, when Dr Bond consulted with Alexander McKellar, Chief Surgeon of the Metropolitan Police, shown here on the far-right lecturing new recruits. Uh, um, quite amusing story is that McKellar would travel in carriages, taking the skeleton around from office to office. With him. The result was Bond's resignation on the 4th of October, 
from his duties as medical officer for the men employed at the Commissioner's office and the Detective Department at Scotland Yard. He now recognised the advantages of these men having access to medical attention closer to their homes. Dr McKellar wrote to Warren confirming the direction which Bond wanted to take. Mr Bond is not only assistant surgeon to the Westminster Hospital, but is and has been for many years lecturer on medical jurisprudence at the medical school. He has a very large medical legal experience and he would naturally prefer to be referred to by the Commissioner as a medical legal expert, rather than, uh, to retain charge of an extra man who would necessitate frequently long journeys to the south of the river and which would further, in many cases, disqualify him from being consulted in police, civil and criminal business in his higher capacity of medical jurors. London, unlike foreign capitals, has few medical men possessed of large medical legal knowledge and experience, and Dr Bond has both, is an exceedingly good witness and has an intimate and extensive acquaintance with the police. I consider it would be an advantage to the service they should be consulted in medico-legal difficulties. Although this promotion of sorts for the divisional surgeon was not put in right until the 1st of November 1888, it seems that Bond's decision had reached the ears of the Commissioner's Office sooner. For on the 31st of October, Charles Warren composed a letter to the Under Secretary of State confirming that Bond now appreciated the difficulties that might arise should continue to have medical charge of Scotland Yard men. Importantly, Warren confirmed that Bond naturally prefers to be called in by the Commissioner for civil and criminal business, in which he is an expert, instead of other specialists. Given his stubborn refusal to back down over Dr Farr's appointment, Warren's enthusiasm for Bond's medical legal expertise is interesting. This was referred to in a letter to the doctor, dated the 25th of October 1888, in which Assistant Commissioner Robert Anderson appealed for direction to the medical knowledge of Jack the Ripper. Anderson wrote, In dealing with the Whitechapel murders, the difficulties of conducting the inquiry are largely increased by reason of our having no reliable opinion for our guidance as to the amount of surgical skill and anatomical knowledge probably possessed by the murderer or murderers. I brought the matter before Sir Charles Warren some time since, and he has now authorised me to ask him if he will be good enough to take up medical evidence given at the several inquests and favour him with your opinion on the matter. He feels that your eminence is an expert in such cases, and it is entirely in that capacity that the present cases refer to you, will make your opinion especially valuable. With the matter settled, Bond began to prepare his response to Anderson's request, studying the inquest reports on Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes. But before he could submit his conclusions, Mary Kelly was murdered at Men's Court and the surgeon was requested to conduct a post-mortem. His autopsy notes, believed to have been dictated for assistant Charles Heather to write down, were subsequently submitted on the 16th of November 1888 and revealed the true horror of what had been done to Mary Kelly in her room at Men's Court. Although we need not dwell on that here, it's important to note the post-mortem report was lodged with the Whitechapel murders file soon after the murder, but at some point would mysteriously go missing. Bond's profile of the murderer, requested by Anderson in late October, was written on the 10th of November and lodged in Home Office file A49301-21. In it, the doctor concluded that all five members had been committed by the same hand, 
and that all the victims had been lying down when their throats were cut. While the object of each murder was to carry out the mutilations, Bond felt that these had been inflicted by a person who had no scientific, normal anatomical knowledge, not even the knowledge of a butcher or horse slaughterer or any person accustomed to cutting up dead animals. The killer was a man, according to Bond, subject to periodic attacks of homicidal and erotic mania, and the character of the mutilations indicated that he had uncontrollable sexual desires. He was likely to be a quiet, inoffensive-looking man, solitary and eccentric in his habits, most likely without regular work, but with some small income. He may have lived among people who had some knowledge of his character and habits, and who have may have suspected he was not quite right in his mind at times. They would probably be unwilling to go to the police for fear of trouble or notoriety. Dr Thomas Bond's notes on the Whitechapel murder have, almost from the time they were written, been seen as being among the very first attempts at profiling a serial killer. But had it not been for Sir Charles Wine's obstinacy over the doctor's overloaded practice, it's possible he may not have been asked to prepare the report in the first place. And by the time Bond's reports were submitted, Warren had resigned from the commissionership. First to request access to Bond's notes in September 1892 was Dr. Arthur MacDonald, an official of the US Ministry of the Interior at Washington. Dr. MacDonald approached the Home Office requesting copies of official reports relating to the condition of the bodies of the victims of Jack the Ripper. He had attended the London and Brussels conferences in criminal anthropology held in August that year, and having already met with permanent undersecretary Godfrey Lushington, MacDonald had a second meeting, this time with Assistant Undersecretary William Byrne, where he explained that he hoped to publish the relevant medical reports in American Blue Books, as well as a French scientific magazine. On the 28th of September, Lushington wrote to decline the request. MacDonald, no doubt disappointed but undeterred, published his book Criminology the following year, seemingly relying on newspaper reports of Mary Kelly's injuries. More successful was Dr. Gustav Olive, a professor at the School of Medicine at Nantes. Having been instructed to invest a case similar in nature to the Whitechapel murders, in the autumn of 1894, he wrote to Sir Edward Bradford, who was by then commissioner, requesting a copy of Bond's report. This may well have re related to the murder of three young women six weeks earlier, reported by Reuters as a work of a Jack the Ripper type. The body of the first victim, a 21-year-old hotel waitress, was found on the 22nd of September 1894 in the countryside, with five stab wounds to her neck. A razor-edged knife was found nearby. In her closed fist was a handful of her assailant's hair. The second victim was discovered in a meadow three days later, stripped naked and extensively mutilated. A body of a third victim was found near the village of Needers, also packed to pieces. Dr. Olive was told by the Commissioner's Office to contact the Home Office, who had to grant permission for Bond's report to be released. The Frenchman subsequently wrote to the Secretary of State on 8th of November, who forwarded the request back to the Commissioner. Two weeks later, Commissioner Bradford wrote again to confirm the profile sent to the Home Office in 1888, it was the only general report made by Dr. Pond upon the murders in question. Rather embarrassingly for the Home Office, that original report now appeared to be missing. A note dated the 26th of November 1894, 1894 admitted, this report was with, 
8493021, but cannot now be found. Ask the Commissioner to send Monsieur Leave a copy if he has one, unless he sees serious objection. A response by perhaps exasperated Rob Anderson on the 7th of December stated, This is now being done. A copy of the report in question is attached. The new carbon copy of Dr. Bond's profile in the report was a stamp the 10th of December 1894. But by the time Relief's request was dealt with by the Home Office, a month after his initial request, a bricklayer named Joseph Meyer had been arrested and confessed to the murders, going on to show the police where he buried items stolen from the victims. But where, was, where had Bond's report been in 1894? Probably won't be surprised. Was it a simple case of a civil servant not looking too hard for it, or perhaps had Chief Constable Melbourne Norton borrowed it from the files some months earlier in order to write his memorandum, in which he echoed Bond's, Dr Bond's opinion there were five Whitechapel murder victims killed by the same hand. While the original report would find its way back to the official files by the time Ripper researchers were granted access in the 1970s, Bond's autopsy report on Mary Kelly was missing until 1987, when it was anonymously returned to Scotland Yard, along with a Dear Boss letter and papers related to the Cripping case. These documents had almost certainly been held in the personal files of Melville McNaughton. When Sir Melvin died on 12th of May 1921, his personal papers died to be passed to his wife, Dora Emily Sanderson, who in turn passed away on the 8th of January 1929. It would have been expected for her eldest son Charles to inherit them, but he was at that point in Montreal, and in fact died there of pneumonia in February 1931. McNaughton's papers were thus inherited by his eldest daughter, Julia Mary Donner. When she died on the 2nd of October 1938, they passed to her son, Gerald Melvin McNaughton, uh, Gerald Melvin Donner, McNaughton's grandson. You can see Gerald in the highlighted box there. Gerald was born in December 1907, he would marry three times. First to Paul Sanderson, with the result of three children being born. The couple divorced in 1937, and in October 1938, Donna married Mia Miles. The couple had one son. Mia obtained a degree absolute in September 1949 on the grounds of her husband's adultery. In December 1951, Gerald Donner sailed from Southampton to Bombay with third wife Lily Vetch. Their home, recorded on the passenger list, would be in Madras. It would seem that the Ripper material travelled with him. <clears throat> when Dan, Dan Farson's book, Jack the Ripper, appeared in 1972, it was reviewed by The Guardian by journalist Philip Loftus, who happened to be a friend of Gerald Donner. He wrote, my interest in the Druid possibility started even earlier than Mr. Farson's, in 1950, when I was staying with an old school friend, Gerald Donner. I saw framed on the wall what I took to be a copy of the letter, the first letter claiming to come from Jack the Ripper, sent before the third murder and written in red. Copy be damned, said Gerald, that's the original. He told me that Sir Melbourne McNaughton was his grandfather and showed me the private notes in Sir Melbourne's handwriting on the subject on official paper, rather untidy, and the nature of rough jottings. Gerald Donner died in Madras on the 19th of November 1968. His will, dated November 1956, appointed R. Kippin Peterson and Noyes Bank in Madras as his executors. 
they renounced probate because the estate was insolvent, and Gerald's possessions were left to Lily Donner. In 1988, author Paul Begg made contact with Donner's daughter, Gillian Coburn, from his marriage to first wife, Paul Sanderson. Gillian told Paul in a telephone conversation that her sister Rosita had visited their father in India in 1954 and apparently seen several framed ripper letters on the wall in his home. Rosita offered to take the letters back to England, but Donna declined. He told her he was planning to return to England, but whether he did so is not known. And this is the last time that Donna's written material was seen for certain. Following their te telephone conversation, Gillian put Paul in touch with Raymond Gardner, a solicitor at London-based law firm Gordon Dads. Gardner had handled the estate of Lily Donner, who died in London on the 13th of May 1970. In her will, dated November 1962, she left her possessions to her husband, or in the event of him predeceasing her, to her brother James Reynold Vetch who sadly had also died before her in January 1964. Mr Gardner informed Paul that as both husband and brother had died before Lily, her property had passed to her friends George Fernie Whittingstall and Gayform Wade Goff. Two months later, on 3rd of July 1970, the Donner family solicitors Clark Rawlings and Co. placed a notice in the Times seeking the whereabouts of Mia Donner, Gerald's second wife using the address they had for her at the time of the maintenance case between the couple. The reason for Clark Rawlings attempting to trace me here is unknown, but it's interesting that they did so just two weeks after Lily Donner's death. Were they in possession of Gerald Donner's Ripper-related material, which Bernie Whittingstall and Gov declined to take custody of? Mia Donner died at Epsom District Hospital, Surrey, on the 20th of October 1988. At the time of her death, she was living at Linden House Rest Home in Epsom, shown here. In November 8, 1987, an anonymous package was sent to New Scotland Yard in an envelope postmarked Croydon, Surrey. It contained various official Ripper-related documents, including the Dear Boss letter, believed to be the one seen by Philip Loftus at Gerald Donner's ward in 1950. Dr. Thomas Bond's post-mortem report on Mary Kelly and material relating to the Ripping case. Uh, research is ongoing to ascertain when Mia Donna moved to Linden House Rest Home, but if she did so a year before her death, it would coincide with the return of the documents. Epsom is just six miles from the Croydon postal area. Did her son Anthony Donna, sorting his mother's papers in preparation to move to Linden House, discover the Ripper material and return it to Scotland Yard? Dr Thomas Bond would go on to be involved in many more celebrated cases before his death proved suicide in 1901. But as we have seen, histories of his profile on the Ripper and the post-mortem report on Mary Kelly perfectly illustrate that every aspect of life has a cause and effect. Thank you very much. And that was Adam Wood on Dr. Bond's profile of Jack the Ripper. I'd like to thank Adam and Mark Ripper for coordinating the recording of this talk to release to you. To purchase a copy of Adam's book Swanson, The Life and Times of a Victorian Detective, as well as browse the many other titles Mango Books has to offer, 
please visit mangobooks.co.uk. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 200 conference and event presentations, author interviews, roundtable discussions, and archive recordings all about Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders and Victorian true crime. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.